Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. In today's episode, it's going to be pretty interesting because we are going to talk about the best practices in operating in a digital economy, in a digital age, and looking at what the leading companies have done to be successful in making that transition from analog to digital. And I'm going to be interviewing Peter Dahlstrom, who is a senior partner at McKinsey & Company. He leads McKinsey's client and firm's communication, and he's the global leader for McKinsey Digital's business-to-consumer team. And I think he's done work in quite a few sectors, including telecommunications, high-tech, media, and so on. And he's wrote a book called In Fast Times, whereby McKinsey has summarized some of the best practices in terms of how to be a leading edge company in the digital economy. He's written the book with three other McKinsey partners. So the bottom line is that the partners who wrote the book have a good reputation and a track record of doing interesting and innovative work in the digital space. I don't want to say too much about what we'll discuss but I think one of the things that's nice about the book and the discussion I'm going to have with Peter about his work and career in general is that the book isn't very technical. It summarizes and highlights some of the key principles. I think it's very accessible, can be read by anyone. I enjoyed reading it. And the conversation with Peter is going to delve into not just the book, but some of the challenges he's helped executives overcome in thinking through how to make the transition. I liked some of the ways McKinsey and particularly the authors have framed or reframed some topics. I like the focus on the soft skills, which I think is generally lost when you talk about digital coding, apps, back-end, front-end, and so on. Because at the end of the day, if you, as Peter says, a graveyard for the careers of digital stars, you're not going to attract the best people and you're never going to succeed. But I'm not going to tell you what he's going to say because in a few seconds... He's going to do it for you. Hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome, Peter. How are you today? I'm doing very well. Thank you very much, Michael. How are you? I'm fantastic. So you're calling in from London where it's, I'm guessing, very cold, and I'm calling in from Los Angeles where it's very warm. A contrast. <laughs> it's freezing and it's raining and it's dark. So it's freezing not, and it's not, raining not and it's dark. So that's a summary of both the British economy and the weather. <laughs> Mostly the weather these days. <laughs> okay, good. So I know you're very busy, and I wanted to thank you for being on the call. I think our listeners are really going to enjoy it. So thank, thank you so you. much for joining us. Thank you. So let's begin, right? So you've been working in the digital, I want to say sector, but it's probably a function is a better word for it at McKinsey. Mm -hmm. And you've been doing yeah, some interesting work. So I've read some of the stuff you've put out, uh, particularly the book on uh, digital transformation and the digital economy called Fast Times. Mm -hmm. Let's start with some of the things that jumped out. I'm going to start in no particular order, just the things I found interesting, right? Sure. When I was reading the book, I thought a better name for the book would have been A Graveyard for Digital Stars. It's one of the chapters you have. And I was I was skimming through the book to find out where to start reading. I thought, wow, this must be the most captivating mm -hmm. title I've ever heard before. Mm -hmm. so, so, so let's begin there, right? Because whenever you talk about the digital economy, digital mm -hmm. superstars, companies that are capturing the bulk of the pie in e-commerce mm. and digital. It's almost mm. as if there's a huge focus on technology, software, coding. But when I read the book, there was a very big emphasis on the soft side of things. So mm. let's start with this idea of 
how do you attract these individuals who can reposition your business to thrive mm. in this new economy? What, what are the principles for that? Yeah, no, so I, I think you captured um, maybe the essence of, of uh, what it takes like, to drive these digital transformations, um, at least one, one of the really important factors. And the that's slightly, slightly counterintuitive thing is when people think about digital transformations, you do exactly think about what you describe as IT architectures, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, software stacks, delayering, and all of these sorts of things. And I mean, the, the, the much, much more important mm-hmm. factor is actually soft or softer in nature. And mm-hmm. things like attracting the right talent, you know, redesigning organization operating models, addressing cultural change, those are the things that really start to pop up as, as much, much more important. To your question about how do you attract, you know, these superstar talents, um, it's really not easy because typically, you know, whether you take a telecom company, an insurance company, a bank, you know, these, these, these talents don't, um, don't fit in these companies and they're not particularly attracted so to join them either. So, so it's, it's really not easy to, uh, to, to get to them. Um, and the way to do it is through a combination of, and, and this is the hard part, reskilling and upskilling existing staff and attracting people from the outside. Um, when you when you speak to executives who successfully transformed their organization, they would say that 75, 80, 85 percent of the people need to come from inside. Wow. You know, many of the of the large companies, they've, I mean, they've got thousands of people, tens of thousands, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of people, and you simply can't um, replace. You know, yes. certainly not all of them, <laughs> not not even like large large portions of them. So so reskilling and upskilling is a really, really important part. And you've got some examples of companies that have done, done that really well. AT&T, Walmart, they just run reskilling programs at, at scale. So that's a really important part of it. But it's not the only thing. Actually attracting the talent or some talent from the outside is critical as well. And it's not the large numbers of people. It's finding, you know, the first 15, 20, 25, 30 people from the outside and bring them in-house. And, um, and that requires just you know, quite different recruiting techniques than, uh, than, uh, than people are used to. So in McKinsey's, we have 30,000 people inside our firm. We've yeah. hired 5,500, 6,000 digital and analytics people from yeah. the outside. And number. we had to fundamentally change the way we recruited. Mm. So, so we had to go to different sources. Um, we needed to find a couple of people to bring in-house like superstar, world-class talent. And these people then through their social networks attracted attracted more people. So I think finding the first 15, 20, 25 people that are the you know um, digital superstars yes. is absolutely critical. And they then attract you know others through their networks and it becomes like um, it becomes like magnets uh, for, for for further talent. So so that's that's the way um, you know the best companies are doing the combination of bringing people in-house and reskilling, upskilling people, and that, that actually is, uh, requires quite different quite different recruiting uh, approaches. Okay, so I'm going to unpack what you said because I think it's quite important. Mm-hmm. So let's look at the European economy, for example, where I, I'm going to hazard that the labor rules are a lot stricter with unions having a lot more say, at least in places mm-hmm. like Germany and so on. So you can't just replace 10,000 people, even if you mm-hmm. wanted to, right? Yeah. You have to you know, work with your current employees, bring mm-hmm. them up to the level of skill needed to compete in the digital economy, and if I hear you correctly, you've got to seed that organization with a number of key people that can catalyze that change. Yes. And you've got to find out what roles to bring them in. And they've got to almost play the role of a change maker, whereby they're leading an organization through a transformation to compete digitally. So, so if I'm hearing you correct, and correct me if I'm wrong here, when you hire these mm-hmm. few people, they've got to take on the role of changing the organization. Is that correct? 
Mm, yes, so an important important part of it. I mean, they can't they can't do it alone. I mean, if yes. you hire you know a, a a couple of handfuls of of you know really really good engineers or programmers, yes. they can't they can't change the organization on their own. But they're really really important important part of it. Um, you know, and, and another thing you describe is um, the challenge of replacing people. I and mean, what we're actually seeing is that um, in many instances, you know, um, people are actually increasing the number of the of, of, of staff. Okay. Um, so, so, so many of the um, of the large corporations, again, across multiple industries, take telcos, banks, insurance companies, many of these companies, although, you know, quite technology centric, because they don't have physical products, they actually sell services. So they have a very IT centric, they've outsourced and offshored large part mm. of the engineering resource. And, you know, the system integrator companies, they have I mean, take like, you know, whoever, whoever you, you want to name, they have like hundreds of thousands of people like sitting in all kinds of different places around the world. Yes. And the truth is when you become a digitally or a digital, a more digitally savvy company, you just need to move some of these people back in house. Ah, yes. You know, not, not all of them. But, so this but, is about, um, this is about yeah. knowing what to outsource and what to keep inside. Exactly. So, so you, look, you look at your software stack, you will have some backbone, you will have an, yeah. you know, API, open API level, microservice on the top, and the microservices which allow you to drive differentiation to your competitors. You know, some of these microservices you do want to develop in-house. And when you develop them in-house, you want to do them with your develop them with your own own people. Yes. And these people, they work, you know, in cross-functional teams with your marketing people, with your salespeople. And if they're outsourced and offshore, it's just completely and it's, it's the wrong way of working. So you bring them back in-house, you create these cross-functional teams. And you you make you make these cross-function teams develop the parts of the software which differentiates you compared to your competitors. So in many cases, um, actually the, the the number of engineering resources um, in-house actually increases rather than than, than, than falls. Mm. Okay, so there's two interesting things here you raise. I'm going to explore them both. So if mm -hmm. I was the CEO of a major outsourcing company, this is an opportunity for me to go to companies like Volkswagen, Total, Airfront, and say. Because of the fact you're going digital, the things you're going to outsource may change, and we can help with that. Yeah. So, so, um, so, so, so that 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 is what they're doing. Uh, but the truth, the truth is also so um, that that more and more companies, I think, you know, will just outsource less yes. and offshore less. You know. Or at least so, what so, is being offshored would change. Yeah. Exactly. No, I, so I, I agree with that. It changes, um, but the but the most critical parts for, of your software stack, yes, you know, I think you do want to control. You do want to, like, you know, have the people develop that in house. You do want to um, have that on shore yes. and sit sit on your own premises. So, in, in a manner of speaking, the things that companies considered non core commoditized functions that they competed on cost, it flips the script. Mm. Yes, and they now need to think about how they can bring it. For example, if I've, a company at uh, offshored all of its analytics function to India, the Philippines, and didn't really care mm. about it, just signed SLAs on a cost plus basis, those executives need to rethink about how to bring those back inside the business and find a way to create a competitive advantage there. That's, that's exactly it. So it's, it's quite a fundamental shift for companies because it's not just going mm. digital. It's about changing the way you manage suppliers. It's about deciding what your core business is going to be. It's about changing Absolutely. the way you recruit it. It's, it's not going to happen at once, but it's a, it's a number of discussions and a series of changes. That's correct. No, that's, that's exactly it. And that's why, that's why this is not easy, right? Because, yes. I mean, it's like your whole, your whole organization operating model changes. 
you know, so from, from being organized like many businesses are by function or in business units suddenly and having, you know, um, large groups of people, you know, outside your company, what you actually have in the company and out of the company changes mm-hmm. and how you're organized inside the company changes. Yes. Right? So, so in many cases, so like the traditional organizational structures and processes don't work, don't work as well anymore. So, so it is, it is a huge shift. And as companies go digital, they have to do it in different ways because each of them will have different competitive advantages that they need to emphasize. And um, I think an example of that, I would think, is um, competing in artificial intelligence where you need a lot of data. And you will suck in a lot of data and analyze it and so on. So companies that have this ability to mine or have access to the data will have an advantage. And that's an area they can develop versus another company who wants to go digital and may not have that advantage, right? I agree. I agree. So so when executives are listening to this, it's not as if everyone's going to go digital in the same way. It's going to be a different pace and in different areas of emphasis. Agree. So if I, if I give you maybe a couple of examples sure, of um, types types of, of, of digital transformations, which which are quite different different in nature. Um, so I just take a couple of my own um, clients uh, that I have worked with. I'm currently working with. Um, so one of the first companies I served that was really really exposed at at, at pace, you know, uh, to, to the to the digital economy was was a media company. It was basically a, a newspaper and magazine company. And um, you know, newspapers and magazines are very easily read online. So they they basically saw their business, I mean, disappearing. So what they what they did is like said, I just can't transform my newsroom quickly enough from being so like a physical newsroom yeah. and just now pr- pr- printing mm-hmm. physical newspapers and magazines. Just it, I just can't do it fast enough. So like to to um, stem the revenue decline. But what I can do is. Because I've got so much in, insight into, so like you know how how um, consumers or users use the internet. I, I see this earlier than anybody else. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to buy 15, 20, 25, 30 different companies mm-hmm. based on the cash I'm generating today, and just create a portfolio of companies which is much much more digitally exposed yes. than my core business. That's that's one way to transform. You know where where it's just changing so fast, so you just can't quickly enough transform your core business. So it's an M&A based, mm-hmm. joint venture based, you know, way of transforming. If I take a, a second company, which I which I served a little bit later. So this this was a fast food company, they make pizza and, and other sort of fast fast food type things. And their business was heavily exposed. So like to, to digital at the time when yeah. we started working together. So they had 60, 70% of the business, you know, uh, was sold online. You take pizza for example, I mean you know some in some markets, you know, in some Western European markets, 50, 67% of pizza sold online, and they had outsourced the platform and the management of the platform to somebody else. They said, you know, this this is now my core business. You know, making the pizza itself is really interesting, but this is now very much the core of my business. It's the majority of, of my revenues. Mm-hmm. So I need to own and control that. So what they did is I said, I want the best online experience across all categories for the way I market and sell and, and service uh, my, my, my pizza customers. Perfect. So, so they, they created the best, you know, digital platform almost across all, all categories uh, because that became the core and a platform which I could then expand beyond pizza and to all kinds of other fast food and, and other like food, food types, uh, uh, types of businesses. So, so, so that was the way they transformed, which was a platform-based play, very much mm-hmm. online and e-commerce-based. And the last one maybe is, 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 a, is a telco. Telco has been a very difficult sector uh, yes. uh, in the last six, seven, eight years. Probably one of the most value destructive, you know, industry sectors, at least in, in Europe, of, of almost any sector in any 
geography and the almost in the history of mankind. If you take the last seven, eight years, you know, this cash contribution from the industry has fallen about 20, 25% over the last seven, eight years. So it's really been a very, very tough environment. For telco, it's about cost reduction. So they need to sort of cut costs faster than the revenue line declines. And, you know, they, they set out to say, I need to cut costs in my call centers, for example, by 50%. So it's a very functionally focused effort to just slash costs and move more and more of their customers onto e-commerce platforms and apps to not have to serve them through the call centers and just like cutting costs in specific areas of business. So three archetypes that are quite different based on where the company was, based on how quickly the industry moved. And uh, most companies will find, need to find some, some combination of, uh, of these different archetypes as they Well, I think that's the difficult part, right? Because Mm -hmm. you need to figure out if you're whatever entity you are, how to change. But I think the harder thing is knowing what good looks like. I mean, what are you trying to become? Because there are some, I mean, the media tends to be biased towards a few companies, and they play them up as being the only examples of how to be digital. Mm -hmm. And there's always a danger that an executive gets caught into that um, echo chamber. But each company has to has to migrate at its own pace with its own strategy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. And uh, I'm, again, I mean, I, I wish that more executives would, would think like you because I think that's that's exactly it. You know, um, you can't you copy, you know, yes. a Google or a Facebook or an Amazon. Right? You need to sort of start with the assets that you've got. And, and many of the older incumbent companies they've got great brands. You know, they've got a great great you know, number of people and yeah. staff working for them. You know, they've got great offerings. They've got heritage. And um, I mean, you need to you need to use what you've got and and create your own way uh, so yes. to differentiate yourself based based on the assets and capabilities you've got. So so you can't you can't copy others. And there are nuances, yeah. Right. For example, you know, Netflix is very very. I don't want to say famous. I want to say well known for the fact that they have these algorithms which recommend shows for you to watch, mm-hmm. but. So Netflix is competing on this ability to fine-tune the way it recommends things to viewers. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, Netflix hosts its entire platform on Amazon AWS. Yeah. So it hasn't brought it in-house, but it's built a very sophisticated capability, even though it outsources the movement of its data. So, so what I'm trying mm-hmm. to say is it's what you are saying. Because if you just listen to what we're saying, where you have to bring in analytics in-house, yeah, maybe, mm-hmm. but... You need to think about what is the best thing for you. Yes, you can't just. No, I agree. I agree. You can't yeah. just copy Netflix because I was speaking to um, someone else the other day about Amazon Prime. Uh, say Amazon in general, about how good they are about using artificial intelligence and understanding what customers need, and using artificial intelligence to build capabilities that customers need. But I mean, Amazon has mm. a unique advantage because they sit on so much data. Mm. A, a smaller e-commerce company, maybe regionally focused in, let's say, Belgium, has to digitize itself in a very different way, emphasizing yeah. very different strengths. So it can't just read mm. a book about Amazon and say, that's what we're going to do, because that's Amazon's strategy, not the Belgian mm. company's strategy. Yeah. So, so I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Yeah. I'm going to switch gears I agree, a I agree with bit. you most. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you mostly, I think. You know, mostly. So, so, uh, <laughs> so I'm, I'm actually I'm, that I'm is thinking the, about the, myself the, as, that is as the you speak. British you know? humor. So, so I guess some, some areas, you know, where, where I think, you know, um, you will have a stronger tendency to outsource and not mm-hmm. own and control it yourself. So, yes. so data centers, yeah. that is a scale game, you know, very capital intensive, yes. you know, and ha- how to build large data centers. I mean, you know, AWS, Azure, I mean, you just, you just don't want to compete with them mm-hmm. ever, whether you're Netflix or anybody else. I mean, even if you're a large telco, 
you know, they will sort of struggle to build their own data centers. Yes. So, so I think there's some parts of the business where the bar is just really, really high to ever compete with anybody. Right? Yeah. It's like you, you may just be better off. You know, it's very difficult to you know, differentiate yourself based on a better da- data center. I think the other extreme is, is the data itself. Yes. <laughs> you know, so, um, so while you may outsource the platform on which the data sits, right? so the access to the data and the algorithms, I mean, you may, you may get some advice also sort of how to, how to write the algorithms. Um, but but you do want to own and control the most important data and the way you crunch the data. I think. No, I agree. I with think. It's different for different companies. But mm-hmm. I think what you're saying is that each company is going to be at a different stage in its level of maturity of knowing what to do with the data. Mm-hmm. Some are going to be very sophisticated. Mm-hmm. It's like I think Netflix probably is. I mean, they, they outsource all of the number crunching, but they're really good at knowing what to do with the data. Well, other companies mm-hmm. are so young at figuring out what to do with data that just getting it outsourced is going to be a big progressive step for them. Mm-hmm. And then over time, they yeah. have to figure out, okay, now we've outsourced it. The outsourcing is working fine. Everything is done. We've paid off that cost. What do we do with the data that we're getting from our outsourced operations? They have to, they have to mature up to that level. Is that a good way of looking at it? Mm. It's one way to look at it. I mean, so so I I really um, feel strongly about most companies, at least over time. Yes. You know, uh, should have an aspiration to own the data and mm-hmm. you know, so to to execute campaigns and other activities based on the data. Because I mean, you know, giving that up and hoping to win, uh, I think will be will honestly be difficult. I think. You know, that said, I think I mean, they, I, you you are making a good point. I mean, in some cases, some companies, smaller ones or otherwise. You know, a couple of a bit behind. They they need help, right? Mm-hmm. But I would I would structure the help in a way that I can get it back. I wouldn't I wouldn't sell it off. I wouldn't structure agreements where I will struggle yes. to build the capabilities myself. So so a build, operate, and transfer type concept where somebody helps me build it. Maybe even somebody helps me operate it. You know, for for a period of time, but then transfers it back to me. You know, so I own and control my own data, my own algorithms, and I build the capabilities. I think you know. I, I, if, if I really want to win in, in a sector, a segment of a sector, I think that, that, that's the way I would think about it. I think I'm agreeing with you 100% here because the end goal, no matter what you're doing and where you are in terms of how you know, skilled you are at managing data and so on, you have to eventually be trying to get to controlling data. But I think the term we're trying to talk about here is the last mile, right? It's about yes, how yes. we use that data to make that final connection with consumers and customers. Correct. And you never want to outsource that or give, give that away because you, if you don't have that ability to talk to your customers, how do you know what they want? Exactly. And if you don't know what they want, how can you, you know, reorganize your business or produce products or services to give them what they want? And the example I think of this is um, retailers. And if I was a Procter & Gamble or Unilever's or something like that, I've got to work through a retailer, but it's the retailer that has the data on the customer, not Unilever. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same with Amazon, right? I mean, Amazon is probably sharing some data with stores that sell on the Amazon platform. But at the end of the day, it's Amazon who knows what a customer wants, knows when to send him an email or her an email reminder. That last mile control they have is what, to a large degree, differentiates them. And Amazon is very good for not, not sharing the data. Also. Yes. I mean, like, so, so, they, so they, it's one of the problems, you know, of actually uh, for, for some of the consumer product yeah. companies, uh, or even so like you, you may know the book, book publishers and otherwise, it's exactly. like basically work, work with them because they don't have full access to the data. And yes. I'm trying, as you, as you spoke, I, I try to think of examples where, where 
companies are successful in not owning the last mile. And, and the only ones I can think of, but these are very different businesses. Uh, so like, you know, large infrastructure companies where you own a network or you own a bridge or you own a road and you don't care. Yes. Whoever drives, drives over, you know, your bridge or your road or your runs, uh, whatever traffic runs over your infrastructure, you're, ha- you're fine and happy with it. But these businesses, you know, always, no, I shouldn't say always, often will be will be relatively low margin because as you described, I mean, you, you will struggle to differentiate, right? And if you can't differentiate, you can't char- charge an extra margin. So, so it's just very different businesses. Well, and maybe there's know, some but, examples of it, but, uh, but it's not know, easy can, to make it so simple of, um, You can think of, of very simple examples of this. I mean, every day, almost every second day, I get an email from Netflix saying, you should watch this show because based on what you watched before, and I largely base my viewing habits based on that email. But then I'm mm. also subscribed to other streaming platforms who just don't do that. Mm. Now, the mm. question is, do they not do it because they are lazy and their you know, the department doesn't want to send an email? But the most likely answer is they may not actually know how to do it yet. Mm. And at the end of the that's, day, that's the I'm more likely mm. to keep my Netflix subscription than another platform just because I don't know what they have on that platform. Yeah. So, so think about Netflix, you know. The business they have built, right? So, so they start, and and they started like you know in, in a very traditional way, but selling CDs and all that. So, so I mean, so 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 what do they have now? They they started with a relatively simple platform and value proposition. Yes. that was good. Then what they do is they um they get the data, right? So and they accumulate more and more data, and and it becomes becomes self reinforcing. But that data is then used, of course, so to upsell, cross sell. Yeah. And the upsell cross-sell to you, and actually because it's tailored, you actually like it so they reduce the churn. Yes. And then, you know, um, not only are you buying more and you're being more satisfied, actually you, you, you spend more as well. And then because of that, they can actually charge a little bit more. So, so the ARPU, the average revenue per user actually goes up. Yes. Now with that money, they can then invest in branding. So they yes. then actually create like further barriers to entry because of the extra premium and the extra money they make. They can create a great brand, right? Yeah. They promote it in other words, they get more subscribers. Now they gain scale. That scale they can then use not just to buy content, but actually create and produce their own content, which then differentiates further. So now on top of that, they actually start hiring their own analytics people. Mm-hmm. We actually get even better at the upselling, cross-selling, churn mm-hmm. reduction part. And it's not like five or 10 or 15 of them. It's like hundreds of great mm-hmm. analytics people who actually use this data. And then on top of that, they start growing at exponential rates and start making more money. So anybody who becomes a competitor or creates better algorithms, but good algorithms, they can basically buy and suck up. And now you've got a great value proposition, a great platform, a yes. great data, a great brand, the best people, deep pockets, an acquisition engine, where it becomes self-fulfilling and like self-reinforcing. You know, it's just going to be really, really difficult for anyone to compete with a platform play like Netflix, because you mm. create so many barriers to entry yes. that, that um, it's almost impossible to compete with them. And it's all, I mean, like, it's all, all reinforcing and, and they, they've just added more and more proprietary stuff, differentiating stuff, you know, so to, to their ecosystem. And although they are, you know, on these, on these uh, AWS data centers, um, you know, they, they, they pick more and more things, including content creation. Yes, you know, so to to differentiate. And if you saw, but uh, but at the Oscars, they, I think you know, like it was twenty twenty five of the of the Oscar nominations were actually Netflix productions. I think. So, yeah, so no, I mean, it's scary. really really changing cha- changing that industry as well. Well, think about this, right? If you want to compete with Netflix, you've got to figure out a very clever way to do it. But it seems like everyone wants to follow the same strategy of just putting in a lot of high profile shows, and they hope that will buy them enough time 
to build the next capability and then build the next capability. But everyone seems to be following a really similar strategy to compete with them. Yes. It's about more and more shows. But I want to I want to change the direction a little bit, Jen, something quite obvious, but I want to sure. bring it up because I don't think people think about this. We mm-hmm. talked about the last mile and how important it is to control that last mile. But mm-hmm. I want to dumb it down a little bit, Jen, because when, when we talk about the last mile, I think the starting point is you have to have the contact details for your customers, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you don't have the contact details for your customers, how do you communicate with them to control that last mile? Correct. So, you know, the other day I went, I don't go shopping often, but I happened to be in a mall. And it always surprised me when you walk into a retailer, they don't really make a big effort to get your contact details. Hmm. I mean, I walk in, walk out, but they don't know who I am. Hmm. And I always wonder whether companies are so focused on building up digital capabilities that they miss that very important point of knowing who a customer is and a potential customer and being able to communicate with them and potentially show them something they want to buy to keep them in your business. Yes. And it's, it's common, but it's very common in retail, but you see it in many different industries whereby you arrive somewhere and no one has your contact details. Or if they take your contact details, you, they, you get one email from them in a year, but they don't use that access to you as a way to build loyalty, trust, and basically take more money from you, right? Yes. And I do feel a lot of companies miss that. Yeah, no, I couldn't. I couldn't agree more. And um, and the prop the problem is, and this this comes back to the to the uh, to the last to the last mile is that many of the retailers and the frontline people are not at all incented. Yes, not at all incented. So to um to to capture this data. I mean, if you're a frontline salesperson, why why the hell yeah. would you would you ask somebody for their um, email address unless you're incented so to uh, to do it? And therefore, what the best retailers do, and some of the, uh, especially London-based the department store retailers are really good at this, they um, incent, you know, their store managers and their frontline staff to capture this data. Mm. So um, if, you, if you go, um, you know, to, to some of these uh, London department stores, yes. you know, and, and this, is, this is more extreme here in the UK than in some other, some other geographies, but anywhere between, you know, 40, 50, up to 55% of revenues for some of these departments, was also because some of them have a, a large international clientele, is online sales. And this is, this is because they, I mean, they, they do the upselling, cross-selling uh, part really, really well. And they create loyalty uh, programs and customer databases that they very actively, very actively manage. And the way, the way they structure it is that, you know, any, any one of these stores gets, uh, you know, the benefits not based on what's actually sold in the store, but for the customers which like fall into into their um, into their natural areas, the people that they signed up, and therefore you like change the incentives around. So any department store tries to get be the first one like to sign on a customer onto the database because they will get the the benefit for all the future revenues of these customers. So so suddenly you know you don't want anybody to slip away. Yeah. Because you you are the one. This is your customer on a store level, but also on an individual, um, you know, sales agent level. So you basically begin so to to own that customer. And you so you you line the interest more, more than um, than used to be the case before. And again, so, some of the if you, if you if you look and these are not uh, necessarily people that, that I or or yeah. our firm serves. But if you look at Harrods or Liberty or some of, some of these you know high end department stores, they are really sophisticated in these in these types of areas. Yes, I mean, I do agree. Some are better, most are not very good. But let's shift gears a little bit, right? Let's talk about the investment around digitizing. I can imagine, I know this for a fact, because I was reading the Financial Times today, and there was an article about 
lowered, lowering German productivity as German companies, particularly in automotive, need to reskill and reinvest to compete in electric and build the software capabilities for you know, the new economy in automotive. And then alongside mm-hmm. that piece, there was one about lowered German productivity. So one of the things I want to talk about here is if you make these investments, you're ultimately going mm-hmm. to be seeing a drop in productivity in the short term because your input costs are going up, you, you're hiring people, you're buying companies and so on. And it's going to take you time to figure out how to get the return from your investment. What I want to talk about is, is how do the best executives manage expectations with shareholders and so on as they need mm-hmm. to make that investment and see through the ramp up? Yeah. So a couple, a couple of points that you said, and uh, I agree with. So, so, so the investments are very meaningful. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, once once you get going, and and you really on an enterprise-wide level, yeah. you know, um, attempts to to digitize your business across all functions and all all kinds of business units. Mm-hmm. And again, if if you're Volkswagen, a big bank, a telco insurance company, a retailer, you know, these these transformations over a two, three, four-year period. I mean, they, they run in the tens of millions of euros, sometimes, you know, a good, a good chunk above 100 million euros, and in some cases, even a couple of hundred million euros. So, yes. so, so these are very meaningful investments. This is not um, a normal little project that you, that you run on the side. So the so investments are very meaningful. The second thing which you said is they don't pay back immediately, mm-hmm. which is also true. You know, so, so, so you can structure them in ways that they become, you know, if, if everything works well, yeah. they, they can be self-financing. Yes. quickly, you know, and, and you can always start stuff in the beginning. So that, that self-financing in the first three, six, nine months yeah. like, is a proof of concept. But as you then scale up, there will be a period, in most cases, I would say, depending on the nature of your business, but there will be a pay- period when you go from a couple of pilots, handful of pilots, which you can make pay back themselves. But when you scale up, you know, from, from a couple of pilots to an enterprise-wide transformation, but you're not running at full scale and full speed yet, there is a period um, where there may be a cash flow. And that, of course, is, is really tricky for a CEO or senior executive team yeah. so to, to manage through that period, you know, because they have to manage quarterly earnings and they, um, you know, and they have to promise something, yes. you know, which will come. Um, so, so there's this difficult period. And again, this is why, you know, many people who start these digital transformations are typically early in their career mm. and in their CEO careers or senior executive careers rather than, so like, you know, midway through at the end yeah. because there will be there will be a certain period of time when when um, when, it, when it doesn't look so good and you don't want that to happen at the end of your career you want it to happen like some somewhere midway so i think one of the things you know that really good ceos or senior executives do is like to do it early in their career mm, rather than like towards the middle or the end so time it properly i think is is one big success factor the second thing is um and i think with that branson success and i think he meant it more uh, towards the internal organization but communication is a really important part of um, of these transformations, and it, it's communication you know, internally towards towards uh, the staff because their roles will change, you know, how they work will change, their yes. minds and behaviors needs to change. But it's also um, you know communication to the uh, fellow senior executives. Um, it's communication aligned with an agenda, but importantly, it's also communication to the board and to to external investors. Yes. So. Um, and if you if you remember from the book, we said there's a couple of component elements like, yeah. to to think about. Um, and one of them is so like, to take a little bit of time. Yeah. So to, the whole thing is about pace and, and yes. acceleration and scaling up and secure sustainability capability building. But what we are saying is um, take 
you know, move a little bit more slowly to move faster. And, and the moving slowly bit is um, to really think things through up front uh, in, in, a, in a structured way. So to, to figure out your, your point from the beginning, you know, how, how are we going to differentiate it? So, so what is, yes. what, what are the things, you know, if you're Netflix, is it analytics? Or what is, so, so what are the things where we sort of truly, truly differentiate? And therefore, we start with these things, these things. We, don't, we don't go enterprise-wide immediately, but we start with the things that are going to drive most value in the short term. So set the agenda and then communicate that agenda to, you know, your within the executive team, to your organization, but also to your shareholder. And linked to that strategy and the agenda, there needs to be some level of a business plan, right? So with, uh, with economic, economics attached to it, because the investments are so large. Yes. In some cases, again, it'd be more than 100 million, 150, 200 million range. That, I mean, no, no board will just like sit yes. and wait and so like, see you invest that kind of money uh, without a clear business plan and so like, some, some payback curve. So, so, so that, again, is, is really important. So to create the strategy, create the integrated architecture of a program, and then so like an execution plan so that you know when which type of returns come and then communicate that to all the various stakeholders. And as you were saying that, I was thinking of the CEO of Disney when he made the decision that Disney would go all in on streaming. He, I think he spoke to the board or somehow he signaled to the board that he wants to have his tenure extended to see through that transition. So when we talk about a company being committed, we really mean is that individual being committed, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, is the yeah. CEO committed to see this through or is he going to be honest with himself or herself and say, actually, now's the time for me to go and someone who is willing to see through this four or five year transition needs to take over? I mean, you you probably know this better than I do because you're currently working with a lot of clients, but there's a lot of companies going through this transition. And at a certain point, it comes down to an honest appraisal from the CEO of whether he or she wants to commit to this for four to five years. Mm-hmm. Because it's a big thing, well, right? Yeah. Four to five years is a yeah. long time. I agree. And well, the, the other thing is also on a personal level. I mean, it, it um, in some cases, you know, what, what took you to become CEO is not the same, are not the same things yes. that actually allow you like, to, to drive a great, yeah. a great digital transformation. I mean, you know, I, I serve um, a few very strong leaders, like mm-hmm. real silverback type CEOs, yeah. um, you know, and, and some, in all honesty, um, will never change. Yes. Right? And so, 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 so what brought them there was strong decision-making, sitting yeah. at the end of the table, um, you know, seeing business cases, grasping these business cases faster than anybody else, you know, having a good sense for what, what's the next trend in respective industry, reallocating resources, and, you know, um, and just leading with very, you know, um, strong direction and assertiveness and organization yes. to, into, into a new direction or into, into a yeah. direction with full, with full force. Digital is, is different. I mean, so like digital by definition um, is based on so like relatively autonomous, self-governing groups, and it's not three or four of these groups. In large organizations, you will have, you know, um, you will have several dozen tribes, and within each tribe, you have like a dozen squads. So a squad is, I mean, you know, 10, 15 people. A tribe can be 100, 150 people, and in large organizations with tens of thousands of people, you've got many, many of those. So if, so if you're a CEO, you know, how do you, how do you manage something like that? Yes. So, so, so your control over squad or tribe, mm. in all honesty, is is limited. Yeah. Right. So it's quite uncomfortable. 
So like you know, um, if you're a software company, if if you are, and and I don't I don't know I don't like how 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 Sajid Nadella runs it, but like so say you launch a new version of Word, yeah, and you've got a tribe that that works on that. You've got a product owner who who launches this new version of of Word. So your level of control of the actual design and the development and the engineering. Maybe he's different. You know, he's a genius. So, so yeah. maybe he's different. But for most normal mortal CEOs who, who who've got you know dozens of these tribes and and many many of these squads, so the ability so to go in and influence what these people actually do is quite limited. And therefore, the role that you play becomes different. And it's more the conductor of an orchestra. It's more yes. the cheerleader. And I'm, I'm I'm trivializing a bit too much now. But but the sparring partner, the the thought partner, the the problem solving partner. So when you go in and actually spend time with these with these units. It's quite different than like sitting in a boardroom at the end of the table and like seeing business cases and like saying left, right, center. Uh, the, the, the way you lead is quite different. And some are ready for it and others are not. But I don't think you're trivializing it. I think that is 100% correct. I mean, if you run a large organization, you can't do everything. You have to figure out how do you get your teams to want to do something that's important for the company. And sometimes that's cheerleading. Other times it's coaching an executive. It's, a, it's, a, it's almost as if you're managing an orchestra, right? And the way you get each piece of the ensemble to be its best is going to be different. And then let's just talk about, just tie this back to something you said at the beginning. Because we started off talking about a graveyard for digital stars. I'm going to hazard a guess here, but I'm going to think that the way the CEO communicates or the way the leadership team communicates about their desire, fortitude, commitment to going digital is going to play a very big role in whether you can attract these digital stars to seed your organization. I would say maybe it's the biggest role, right? Mm, I agree. If I'm just standing up there as a CEO of a company and I'm disparaging digital companies because I don't think that's good for my company, why would someone who's a star in an industry quit his job to come to my business where he thinks the CEO doesn't care about his agenda? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think so. The communication that it's important and standing on the soapbox and saying it, I think is, re- is really important. There's a couple of other things that yeah. the CEO can do that are really, really important to not not create these graveyards, but, but becomes like a, a, a magnet um, for these superstar uh, talents. And one, um, and it, some of it again is is, is easier than, than some of the other things. But um, what's what's important for for that talent to at least for a period of time, so like to want to be part of your um, of your organization. Yeah, it's like a, a, a couple of things. So so just the way, and, and you know, I may get like a bit so too technical technically, but but the the way you structure your IT architecture is actually quite important. So, so some of the best developers they like to program in open source. They like to create a brand for themselves and like mm. to share their software yeah. with others. So how you build a stack? Yes. Whether you've got off the shelf software or you you allow them to program in open source and use, you know. You know, and, and collaborate with with other people inside and outside uh, of your own organization. Uh, and uh, just uh, the openness of the architecture is quite important for for these people. The second thing is, um, what I spoke a bit about before, is you know to work with other great people that yeah. that you want to be on a team with. It's like when you're a good football player, it's much more yes. fun to to play for Barcelona, Real Madrid, and you will become better yourself, especially if you're a young player and, and playing actually playing it all and play, play, playing with these with these team members and. And um, engineers and, and, and developers and, you know, that, that type of talent, they want to be working with the best of the best. And again, you know, the best attract other really good people and, and the next generation talent. And the third thing, I know this again is, is a little bit sort of trivial, but, you know, many environments, um, so the working environment, many people have like spoken about that. Uh, and it's not just um, the lava lamps and, and uh, beanie hats and stuff like that, but it, but it is the working environment does matter. 
And if you go into some companies, you know, it's just, it's just not inspiring. Yes. You know, um, it's just not a, f- a fun environment to work within. And, and it just sends all the rock signals, you know, as, as you start. And again, just like creating environments. And I, I worked with a telco in Scandinavia that um, had facilities that were not great, but they did have a warehouse. We had, you know, all their Cisco servers and their yeah. mobile infrastructure equipment. So we ripped out all that stuff. And the CEO was standing on one of these ramps where you look all, all over the warehouse. And he's like said, you know, one, one day, one day I want this whole warehouse to be filled with agile tribes and squads. And as we moved along, and this is like six, seven years ago, something like that. And the, the, today the warehouse is full, but we basically moved and moved more and more of the core business into this warehouse. And, and just the, the physicality of it, it's like seeing how, you know, you move from the old to the new into this cool new environment. And of course, over time, then more and more people want to move from the old to the new. That made, that made a huge difference to us. And then, of course, the role modeling of, of the senior executives to, uh, to um, you know, not just, not just in wording and communication, but also through physical action and being there and advocating it uh, makes, makes a huge difference. So if I'm hearing you correctly here, none of these principles are, are, are that complex or some highly guarded secret. They're fairly well-known principles, right? Mm-hmm. So what makes, what will determine whether a company or an entity is successful in making this transition or being better if they've already made this transition? Is that whether they have this, this checklist, but their commitment to figuring out what works for them and making sure they see it through? Mm-hmm. Because it's not as yeah. if if you read the book, you're going to find out something you've never heard before. You, as if you're the leader of a large organization, you've you've seen it before, but the book reframes it and makes you understand yeah. how you need to think about it. Yes. Which is you know brings me back to when I first read the book. I liked it a lot because I felt it wasn't technical. Um, yes. I felt it operated at a principle level. So that yeah. if if I'm a busy executive, I don't really have to get into the details, I can think about this at a principal level and work with my leadership team to understand how we can implement this. Was that mm-hmm. the, the intention for the book to write it at that level? Yeah. Let me, let me comment, um, before I get into the book, let me just comment a bit sure. on, on, um, on the transformation and why, sure. why this is um, hard, although conceptually... Oh, it is hard, not, yes. Not that hard. <laughs> yeah. you know, so, I mean, you absolutely, conceptually, none of the stuff we've been talking about yes. is rocket science. Right? But that's so, what makes know. it hard because it's, it's known, but companies don't do it right yeah so, so the thing is um we probably talked about i don't know 15 20 different small things yeah. right so, so, so if, you, if you didn't quite figure out you know how to differentiate you know um then all you do will just be what everybody else does if you didn't quite figure out you know how to build your it architecture yeah. and what within the architecture to differentiate and actually bringing people into into the organization to to differentiate Yes. It won't quite work, you know. If if you don't attract, you know, some of the best talents, um, then attract other good talents to, to create in a sustainable way that differentiation, it won't quite work. Yes. So if the CEO is one of these old silverbacks who won't change, you know, then it won't quite work. If you can't create, you know, the cross-functional teams, the agile tribes and, and, and squads, you know, or, or you, you create them, but you can't scale them because they don't quite fit it into an overarching organizational operating model. So you just do them three, four, five of them, but then it doesn't fit for the rest yes. of the organization. I don't know how to scale it up. It won't quite work. You know, so there's so many different things, each of which is looks like a, a zero one. So, so if any one of them is zero, it's, it's all multiplicative. Yes. If one of them is zero, you don't have the leader or you don't have the org structure or you don't have the people, either one of those is zero, the whole thing falls through. Yes. So, so you need to be on some level of capability on all of them. And then, and then, of course, you can't work on all 15, 20 things in parallel. 
Yes. So you need to work on the stuff that really matters at any point in time. Critical you fill a gap. Yeah. There's another gap. And there's another gap. Another gap. And that and that, and that takes time. You know. So 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 that then takes you three, four, five years, and it takes you these hundred, hundred fifty, two hundred million dollar million dollars. And do you then see it through? And and that's that's what makes this hard. Yes, and, and I think yeah, what makes it harder is that you know we've been talking about a company, but while the company is responding, their competitors are doing other things. Exactly. And exactly. you, you so may have the world's greatest thing. plan, but it's rendered moot by something a competitor does. Yes, yes. So it's a moving target. Then on top, whenever you did something, right? So say you did design your strategy or your org and operating model, or you figured yeah. out the capability map. It's a it's a moving sheet because your competitors are changing. You know, your customers are changing. So you have to constantly adapt, learn, adjust. So, so while you always need to have these things in place, you need to always adjust and, and uh, tweak them. Yeah, I mean... So, so, so that's, that's... No, continue. Good. That, that's what makes, makes this difficult, you know. Um, and, and why, why I think like 70% or more than 70% of these, of these transformations fail. And while when you look, it's really hard to find these great, you know, digital transformation stories yes. where somebody was an old incumbent and today is like a great digital leader and you yes. end up with this with this scenario that you described in the beginning with these graveyards of people who tried but, yeah. but you, you you see you see the dead bodies in the graveyard yeah i mean you know a good way to think about this i'm sure you do that anyway with your clients is that while we use the word digital and digital economy this is about taking a bet on where the future is going to be mm. and taking any bet on where the future is going to be is going to be difficult so mm. while we talk digital it's really about an, an executive coming together with his leadership team and saying, look, in the next five years, this is where we think the industry is going. This mm. is where we think the technology is going. And this is where we want to play in the value chain with these products, with these customers. And it's hard to make those decisions. Yes. And the thing is, you, you have to be, so that's, that's another thing which, which we um, uncovered, which I know it's controversial or not, but, but you have to be first with something. Yeah. Yes, yes. You, you know, mentioned like that in the some, book. And, and I like that. Some offerings, some analytics, some segment that you go after. You have to be first. We always talk about like fast followers yeah. is, is a fine strategy. Now, fast followers is not a fine strategy anymore, you know, and that's one of the learnings. So, so just sitting still and waiting and following is not an option anymore because the environment is changing so fast. And, you know, ask ourselves, is that really true? You've got Moore's law, of course, like where, yes. where everything, you know, the processing capacity of a computer chip doubles every every two years. But it's true for almost everything. If you take, um, if you take the development in, you know, whether it's, sensors yeah you know, the, the the cost of a sensor has gone from tens of thousands to a couple of hundred if yes. you take uh, industrial robotics five hundred thousand you can buy them today for ten fifteen thousand yes if you take um if you, if you take you know the uh, sequencing of, uh, of the human genome of the dna it used to cost ten million dollars you can buy it today off the shelf for a couple of hundred dollars yes. if you take solar panels if you take i mean almost any any aspect you know, 3D printing used to call the 3D printer used to cost forty thousand dollars. You can buy it for a couple of hundred dollars today. So in every single aspect, just the the change is exponential. It's not it's not ten, fifteen, twenty percent. It's like hundreds and sometimes it's thousands. Yes. Just the pace of change is so fast. So if you try to follow, you will always be behind. Yeah. And therefore, yeah, you just have to, you just have to move. You know. Well, it's, it's I remember two years ago, the CEO of Volkswagen said that anything Tesla can do, we can do better. And I think two days ago, Tesla overtook Volkswagen in market capitalization. I mean, they were first before everyone else. They have problems, yes, but they seem to be getting it right. But it's what you say, because for a very long time, the the industry almost evangelized a fast follower model. But what you're saying is that because of 
the pace of innovation, if you come from behind, is really hard to leapfrog the incumbent. Mm. So there are times when fast follower works, but generally you want to be there first in some way. Yes, on something. You know, on you have something, to, you have to yes. What you're going to be first, first on, and then it can be a product, can be a service, can be a second. But you, you need to be different on something. You know, otherwise, otherwise you'll struggle. And the reason the for that pace, is, I'm sorry. Uh, and the reason for uh, that is because it takes time to learn about the industry. So you, it's a learning curve effect. You want to start early. Yes. No, exactly. And if, you, if you're out there, I mean, the best way to learn is to be out there and trial things, yes. adapt and learn. And if you're always one step behind, somebody else will always have these learnings first. So, so, so I think, I think um, you really, really, if, 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 I mean, you, you have to move at pace and at yes. scale and think in ways that, that, that make whatever you do sustainable and not just on a pilot basis, but, but ideally if not enterprise-wide, then on a large enough scale so to make it sustainable in the company over time. And when you say learn, you, you're basically using a euphemism for fail, right? <laughs> fail a little, yeah, that's learn thing. a little. Yeah, so, so and that's the other thing we tested. So, yeah. so of the top 10% um, of the companies that grew the fastest, we asked them to describe different characteristics of their, in the, within their culture. And culture, again, is the most important factor in, in driving performance like revenue growth. Uh, within culture, so the one thing that most that most companies pointed to was the the willingness to fail and learn from the failure. I mean, you can't just fail and not learn, but like you have to you have to accept to fail and then learn. Uh, yes. That was the cultural characteristic which uh, which most most which most differentiated the top ten from the from the average company when it came to culture. Peter, thank you so much. I know we're pressed for time, so I want to honor that that uh, commitment. I actually enjoyed this a lot. Um, you know, getting up at seven thirty to do a interview is always fun but this really was fun so thank you so much is there anything else you want to add before we wrap up no the only, the only other thing is um i mean this idea of pace yes. and uh, uh we, we adapted that to, to the actual book itself yes, so it's yeah. structured in in 17 different chapters and yes. you know our friends from amazon told us that only you know um, less less than five percent of the people you know who, who buy a book any book any best-selling book read more than read more than seven percent of a book so less than five percent of people buy best-selling book read more than seven percent of books. So, so the way we wrote this book, you don't have to read the whole book. Yes. You can read each chapter based on the thing of these fifteen, twenty things. You know that is most relevant for you. So if you've got a culture challenge, read the culture section. If you've yes. got an IT architect, read that section. So that's that's the way the book is designed. So, so we, we we took a little bit of our own medicine, uh, also keeping in mind that people are busy and have to get up at 7.30 in the morning so to do these kinds of interviews. So, so you don't have that much time to read the whole book, but at least you can read the section of the chapter, which is yes. most relevant for you. That's, that's the way the book is structured. Well, I mean, I've read the book, and I think the other thing I would recommend to people if they read the book is, is if you're going to take anything out of that chapter, take out the main principle. Because if you, if you list each of the principles, which is what I did from each of the chapters, and you, and you can use it as almost a reference point. And I found that very useful because I, you did, the book does reframe a lot of things uh, I mean, get to all of it, but this idea about not being a graveyard for digital stars, well, it says something we already know, just the way it's said, it makes you stand up and take notice. And that's one example of how you've reframed things. Um, so I enjoyed it very much. I enjoyed this call. Thank you so much. Hopefully Thank the you. weather and the economy improves in the UK. I hope so too. Fingers crossed. Take Thank care. You. Ciao. Thanks, Michael. Ciao. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com.
It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.